Welcome to New Human Living Radio Show, bringing you powerful interviews to awaken the power in you. Learn more at newhumanliving.com. And now your host, Les Jensen. So, you know, it's it's uh it's a pretty common I don't know what to call it. It's not a metaphor, but the the notion that the guy the guy driving the car the the guy's not going to pull over and ask for directions. It's like we're going to we're going to figure this out. We'll we'll just figure this out. We don't need no stinking maps. So if that's the case, where are we as a collective consciousness? Where are we going? Where are we trying to get to? There's a lot of kind of new technology and new buzzwords and the the idea of AI and and inserting uh, computer interfaces into our brains, transhuman, um, the meta universe, so to speak. Where where are we going? I think that's a like uh, a super valid question to contemplate. Not not that we're going to be able to pin where we can sit down and write. 10 years out, 20 years out, 30 years out, in some absolute way what, quote, reality will look like, what um, what we can expect, because there's just so much expansion. There's so much. Really, I mean, there's more scientists on the planet. A scientist can do more with their cup of coffee in the morning, sitting in front of their laptop, than a scientist 200 years ago could do in perhaps a lifetime. I mean, we can we can Google any topic, we can access uh, white papers in at universities. Um, the the rate of expansion of quote understanding unquote is accelerating. There's more scientists on the planet than ever, and every scientist has more resources than ever. So where are we going? You know, I I, I like the idea of when the Western mind says, well, I've come up with a new idea. We're going to put in a brain implant and then connect AI to it, and then we can upload you into the cloud, and then you'll be immortal because you won't have a body. And to me, it, it sounds like trying to make God out of Legos. It's like we're trying to have the God experience by fabricating some sort of mechanism, <laughs> some sort of mechanism. But I'm no sproctologist, but I don't, I don't think it was broken in the first place. In other words, nature has a billion years experience. One thing you can do is, you know, you go on social media and when whatever you click on, it gives you more of. 
click on like sea urchins. Click on like mineral, uh, beautiful crystals and minerals that come out of the ground. And over time, especially the sea urchin one, you're going to just see hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of extremely diverse personifications of life, personifications of nature expressing itself. And what I'm getting at here is I don't, I don't think we should hand it over to the Western mind, the Western ego, to figure out or calculate a trajectory that will improve what nature already is. <laughs> nature wasn't broken. Nature isn't broken. And our Western intellect is by far uh, a rookie our imagi- the, the, the imagination of the mind of man cannot comprehend at its, on its very best day. It cannot comprehend the vastness of nature express, expressing itself over literally the eons of time. And then if you want to go off planet and even out of the galaxy and stare up at the night sky... Nature is like, wow, I don't think, again, I don't think we can comprehend the totality of nature. So I suggest, where are we going? Where are we going? What what do we uh, proverbially see in our future? If it doesn't include us being in harmony with the nature of nature, the nature of all of creation, if our choices, actions, and outcomes are moving us out of harmony with nature, I'm not sure we can sustain that, let alone want to sustain that. I'm excited for the show tonight. The topic tonight is the wisdom of wilderness, and our guest tonight is Ren Hurst. We're going to bring her on in just a minute. Tonight's show is about her book, The Wisdom of Wildness, Healing the Trauma of Domestication. Healing the Trauma of Domestication. What would free-range humanity look like? Brent Hurst is an author, mentor, tracker, and guide helping people address the trauma of domestication. After 20 years of being a professional horsewoman, I love the horse archetype, Ren produced a transformative body of work called Sanctuary 13 to help people restore connection to their most authentic wild, human, animal, nature. She unveils 13 principles of unconditional love for deprogramming yourself, washing that Western mind (laughs) out of our psyche. If um, deprogramming yourself and healing the trauma of domestication and reviving deep connection to inner guidance, your wild soul and ultimately freedom. She lives in the Pacific Northwest, 
And you can learn more about her at rendermewild.com. Join me in welcoming her on the show. Welcome to the show, Ren. Thank you so much, Russ. Thanks for having me. Well, I'm going to start off with this 20 years of being a professional horsewoman. Mm-hmm. The 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 horse archetype, the the horse is such a powerful animal and it's it's bold and it's strong and it can be uh, strong-willed and opinionated and so can our egos. <laughs> so <laughs> so how can how can a horse be such an authentic expression with those attributes and yet our western mind done those same attributes and we and we fall out of harmony with ourselves. I think by the very nature of how we use the horse um is a demonstration of that lack of authentic power within ourselves or our lack of attachment to it. And so we dominate the horse as a false way of reclamation of what we've lost touch with. When when we think about healing the trauma of domestication, uh, every culture tends to think that they're modern. Every every era of time, so to speak, hangs their hat on this idea of being modern or the cutting edge of of intelligence, the cutting edge of science. The how um, what are some of the attributes of domestication that um, everybody can relate to, but really don't serve us? Well, we've been so far removed from the cutting edge of intelligence and natural design for so long that nobody even has a clue what that is because of domestication. And so how I'm defining trauma here is a prolonged, unresolved interruption in emotional development. So events can cause such interruptions, but it's the interruption itself that is the trauma that goes unresolved. And domestication is the intentional interruption in emotional development in order to control another's behavior. And we have been doing this for a very, very, very long time. Who knows how it started or when it started, at least, that wolves have been being domesticated for at least 12 or 14,000 years. Before that, it's anyone's best guess, maybe it was women. But by the nature of the trauma of domestication, only a domesticated being would domesticate another being. So for as long as we've had written human history, we've all been suffering from this trauma and therefore disconnected from the highest intelligence that lives beyond that trauma. So a a domesticated being would would be the only being that would seek to domesticate another. It sounds like a cancer cell, doesn't it? Accurate, <laughs> yes. <laughs> well, now, I like to get clear with our guests how they define terms. So let's look at the notion of emotion. 
the notion of emotion. Hey, that's got a little rhyme to it. The um, what is the role and mechanism of emotions in a healthy human persona? Free, flowing, informative energy in the form of intuition, instinct, and inspiration. Well, now if if I'm having struggles with my emotions, I have a turbulence with my emotions, how is that, um, let's see, let's get an example here. Um, Perhaps I use anger to keep everybody else in check. And so by me becoming angry, I shut down other people from questioning me, from challenging me, from perhaps my ego might feel like being discovered as uh, less than desirable. If we if we get stuck in a emotional repetitive patterns, um, how how does emotions go? Because you're talking about the free flow of emotions. If if we have this repetitive turbulence of emotions in our life, what causes that? The trauma of domestication. So when there is an, a turbulence in emotion or an immature relationship to emotion, such as the anger you're describing, it feels intense, it feels overwhelming, it feels reactive, it feels out of our control, it feels defensive. Um, that is the indication that that is an area of emotion that was traumatized or interrupted in our early development. Mature anger does not come out as an abuse of power or controlling others or violence. It is an incredibly powerful source that is boundaried and protective and deeply wise in a way that most of our has no experience with. I find anger to be delightful in that it when I when I feel anger well up in me, it's alerting me to an incongruency, and then there's this super powerful energy that is just kick ass it's like here's the problem and here's the energy to fix it (laughs) yeah that's definitely one way to look at it so in um in the domestication process i mean my mind just goes in a million directions when i think about this when we think about the 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 domestication of the human persona when how does that show up i mean i i totally understand the concept but if you look at society there's just a, a, a thousand different ways that our emotional development has been kind of harnessed or or uh, stifled or suppressed with the notion of domestication is is there some commonality between all the different ways domestication impedes a, a healthy emotional demeanor i think there's probably well more than a thousand ways for sure but um you know the commonality is 
someone, if we, the commonality is that to have free-flowing wild emotion inhabited in the body is to make you very difficult to manipulate, control, etc. And wild human animals make terrible consumers. So it makes a lot of sense. That also makes it difficult to parent if the parent themselves is not emotionally mature, which none of us had that. So the commonality is the refusal to feel discomfort, the refusal to feel fear, the refusal to feel pain. So often when a a kid gets hurt, especially a parent, you know, (laughs) when my kids were first learning to ride a bike, um, I take the oldest out and and I noticed they were really – uh nervous and anxious and perhaps afraid and then they crashed the first crash it it was almost like the the unknowingness of what a crash would be like and then after the Mm -hmm. first crash they'd get back up on the bike and they'd be a whole different person it's like oh wait a minute i can survive a crash and then get on the bike and a whole different demeanor would be there in mere more moments so my second kid, same thing. Well, my third kid, I just get him started, and then I kick the bike over and get the crash part out of the way real quick. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, because because the the fear of the unknown. Yeah, um, that's we're, it. <laughs> we're so quick to kind of shut down the pain experience, you know. Oh. Oh, you know, perhaps a, a little boy, you know, suck it up, you know, or, or you know, toughen up or uh, dry up the tears and get back in the game. The When we don't allow ourselves to feel that pain, and as a young child, we, we have this feeling of, well, pain sucks and I don't want to ever feel it again. And, and perhaps we start a habit of posturing with pain. It, it seems a little bit uh, masochistic to um, look at pain as something we want to engage in. I mean, what's, what's the role of, I mean, I guess I'd say what's a healthy demeanor with pain? To welcome it, but not seek it. What is it telling us? It depends. Uh, it depends on the context and the situation and, and what it is we have to learn in that moment. But more often than not, it's indicating, you know, a lack of paying attention. And it's a redirection. It's an invitation to move in, to lean in, to relate to life. But our entire culture and society, um, as is our modern culture and society, the few in charge of that benefit greatly by people moving away from pain. Right. So, uh, like, uh, we could go to emotional pain, the, the notion of of being in love and... Um, and then like being cheated on or being abandoned or, um, that, that loss of, of love or the connection of love 
can have so many different levels in in the human persona is is the amount of pain we feel in a situation like that related to our the evolution of our consciousness in other words as we uh grow and evolve our consciousness is our relationship with love changed so we lose the painful response when when our experience with love shifts so dramatically yes because love is a container for all things that can't be defined by any lesser part of itself and that love that you just described around cheating or loss that was not love at all that was attachment that was codependency masquerading as love that was us attempting to reach emotional um, you know regulation through something outside of ourselves and when it's unstable we lose stability within ourselves because of the nature of the trauma in our emotional development when you are emotionally whole and emotionally mature and have access to the full range of emotion and are no longer unwilling to be fully inhabited in the body with all feeling states, love takes on an entirely different new meaning and experience. So in the realm of unconditional love, if, if two people come together with unconditional love for each other, would it be possible to feel pain uh, in in uh, in a separation in that context? Yes, but not the way that most people experience because all emotion, including pain, becomes subtle, pure. And love is always unconditional. But relationships between autonomous adults are absolutely not. They are very conditional. And the love doesn't have to change. The relationship can transform based on the needs of that relationship and, you know, its intention and its, you know, how, what its intended uh, purpose is. And a lot of times relationships reach the fullness of what they're intended to be earlier than people desire. But the more you stay in love with somebody, the less that matters because the love remains. And I think that's been one of the most beautiful experiences of my life is having these deeply rich, unconditionally loving relationships with people. And then as the relationship changed and was no longer romantic or no longer a marriage, the love stayed the same between us. But the boundaries and the dynamics shifted dramatically. And the fact that that is foreign to so many people is so bizarre to me. Because how could you ever stop loving somebody that you ever really loved? Well, perhaps that stems from their posturing with emotions. If Mm -hmm. domestication is the um, impedance, um, interference of emotional development... For myself, uh, I was quite clueless to how I was posturing with emotions um, 
in the sense that the perhaps the most prominent emotion in my life as far as the elephant in the room dictating my choices and decisions, which was anger, was not even whatsoever in my mind had I taken a test and say, okay, list your top five emotions. I'd never, ever, ever list anger. And then the cosmic two by four smacks me upside the head. And I've got a flipping ocean of anger in me, even though I'm an easygoing guy. I had not ever allowed myself to express anger. And so it accumulated in my psyche. And what I'm getting at here is... um, the emotional development part in that now, like I said a little while ago, anger's really cool. And I, I don't, uh, when I feel it well up in me, I'm no longer uh, scared out of my mind because I had no experience with it. When we talk about emotional development and unconditional love, how do how do those two play off each other? In other words, say two people come together and get into an intimate relationship with each other, and they haven't done the work enough to know enough about themselves that they might have some emotional turmoil or unexpected responses that pop up. Um how how do we deal with that emotion within us and still hold a place of love? Well, there has to be enough awareness to do so, first of all, and the willingness to take responsibility for how one feels instead of projecting blame on something outside of us for some pain we refuse to be in relationship to. And so first and foremost, we have to understand what emotion is as information for us about us um, rather than this thing that we're at the mercy of. And when we understand emotion as like universal intelligence communicating through the conduit that is this body, that's a whole different perspective on how to relate to emotion that makes us capable of unconditional love and capable of holding space for another's experience without taking it on or taking it personally. And that's a very different way of relating than the current paradigm we find ourselves in, which is very much, you know, various levels of codependency. Very nice. So let's imagine, um, an island, if that helps, where where there's a tribe where emotional development is not uh, uh, interfered with and everybody in the community or tribe uh, has a healthy emotional um, evolution, so to speak. Mm -hmm. What what role... does emotions in that healthy context, if we were to heal completely our relationship with emotions, how would it change how we go through our day? We would be guided through intuition rather than conditioned thinking. 
into an ever-expanding unfolding that is wildly unknown. So is emotions the vehicle of intuition? Yes. What about uh, inspiration from our heart and our soul? Does uh, does emotions play uh, uh, a part of how our heart and our soul communicate with us? I would say so. And so I like to narrow it down into instinct, intuition, and inspiration. Whereas, you know, instinct is the informed reaction to what needs to happen in the moment. Intuition is the guidance through information that we didn't have to effort. And inspiration is what moves us towards something. It's the internal yes. So I like this. This is a a wonderful conversation. I like this very much. So uh, from a personal sense, if, if we had a healthy emotional disposition, those emotions in the moment to moment, um, trajectory through our day would guide us as far as when we're when we're being congruent with ourselves when we're making congruent decisions and if we get out of congruency or harmony or authenticity with ourselves the shift in emotions would be the feedback to show us that to some degree yes but i think that through the current lens of domestication that has been misconstrued as making some emotions negative or low vibration or what have you in a very spiritual bypassy kind of way. And some emotions like positive and, you know, good and something we should, you know, move towards. And it's really more complicated than that. They all have an equal seat at the table and they are all deeply informative teachers in our guidance, and they all serve us so well in so many ways that are beyond the mind. And it's the body's inhabited intelligence that is our wisest form of guidance. And then we have this mind that can be used to problem solve and create. But the emotion through the body is actually where the deepest wisdom comes from. And then we have this tool that we can utilize to expand that and create in these magnificent ways. But through the trauma of our domestication, we've gotten those roles very reversed in that we've become dependent on the conditioned intelligence of the mind. And we've seen the emotional intelligence of the the body as primitive. And there's a reason for that. If I can control how you feel, I can control your behavior. That's what I learned in the 20 years as a horse whisperer. And basically the work I do now is the reverse engineering of that process, which dramatically changed the animals in my care and created a model for emotional intelligence. Beautiful. Well, the the, the conditional mind, I... I uh... I use the term like the Western mind or Western academics where the rational, logical, linear mind is 
convinced uh, it knows better. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the the Western mind is in the house. We will all be saved now from the grace of the wisdom of the uh, not so fast. I mean, so uh, a lot of times um, w- women are can be tagged with being. Um, irrational or unpredictable. I'm kind of doing a devil's advocate approach here in that sure. uh, when the woman, when the woman is, is touted as being irrational and, you know, emotionally off the handle, so to speak. And, and that linear mind says, whoa, 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 let's, let's tone this down. Um, what is the, uh, how would you describe the the tempest? I don't know if that's the right word, but but when uh, when there's uh, upwelling of emotions and there's a there seems to be a lot of um, emotional turbulence from a from a flat line or a, a real consistent perspective. How does that um, the the emotional upheaval. I don't know if, if that's the right word either. But but the feminine having such a, a, a perhaps rapid um, and and dynamic emotional experience or uh, emotional turbulence in comparison to the Western mind. What's a new way to look at that? What's a new way to uh, understand that? Well, I think it's important to understand that be it masculine relationship to emotion or feminine relationship to emotion, they're both pendulum swings in different directions of the same trauma. Whereas, you know, the feminine aspect of emotion is generally speaking more expressive and the masculine traumatized emotion is generally speaking more repressed or stuffed down. But both are dysfunctional in that emotion is meant to be felt and inhabited, not expressed or repressed. And that's the expression of emotion is the offloading of energy we're unwilling to be present with in the body. And that gives us a sense of relief temporarily. And, you know, the healing industry makes an enormous amount of money off of that. If I can hold space while you express emotion, then I can take your money again and again and again instead of holding space while you integrate emotion and allowing you to become a fully mature wild human animal, in which case you would no longer need me to hold space for you because that would be irrelevant at that point. And so all of it is about how do I avoid discomfort and pain and internal regulation and access to authentic power so that I can outsource this false sense of security through an externalized means of regulation, which is where we circle back to what you mentioned earlier around um, the Western mind being so attached to knowing. There's a false sense of security in knowing that regulates our nervous system, but that comes from a deeply immature, domesticated place in which we don't understand ourselves as what we really are in terms of the universal intelligence that's operating this body. 
I like that. So let's uh, let's take uh, an example of a persona that that can't handle a particular emotion. I, I really like the example of road rage because um, they seem normal. You're riding in the car with them. They seem normal. And then there's a trigger and boom, here comes all this emotion. And when the emotion, when they're in, in the upheaval of the emotion, they, they're irrational and, and lash out and, and, uh, it seems like almost a fearful response of such a sudden insurge of emotion. Now, what I'm looking at here is going to see a, a shrink or psychiatrist for this and then um, perhaps taking it even deeper. And um, you were alluding to the the idea of uh, healing the person's relationship with emotion so the emotion still comes up. I don't want to put words in your mouth, but when the emotion comes up, it's a healthy um, event um, through their persona, and um, they're, not, uh, they're no lesser for it. In, in other words, if I'm a listener and... I know I have a problem um, getting a grip, so to speak, with an emotion of mine, then going to um, someone who who doesn't uh, let me own that, how, how can I myself recognize, or perhaps I already recognize emotion, but how can I... Um, uh, overcome the domestication, overcome the um, dysfunction with that emotion and, and really heal it into a, a, a much more natural and uh, supportive reaction, if that makes sense. Well, the simple answer that isn't easy is to feel it, but manage the emotion. Um, psychologists and therapists are limited in the space holding they can offer to the degree in which they've integrated their own emotions. The trigger is the indicator of the gap in emotional development. So whatever triggers we have in whatever areas of emotion that, um, you know, become turbulent are the indicators of the area of emotion we haven't learned how to stay in relationship to and fully inhabit the body with. And, the means for restoring that and correcting it and maturing it is to inhabit the body and learn how to be in an intimate relationship with the emotion. Now, the reason people don't do that is, for one, it, we're taught to do the complete opposite because that's how capitalist society works. Um, capitalism completely operates on the trauma of domestication because Again, if I can't control how you feel, how do I market to you? How do I advertise to you? How do I sell my product? Um, and emotionally mature wild human animals uh, have way too high of a discernment to sustain the society we've built on the trauma of domestication. And so everything in our current society teaches us to manage or move away from pain instead of invited in and learn from it. 
and the physicality of maturing the emotion and closing that gap in development. And then once the emotion is mature, it becomes a very subtle, guiding, informative experience. But to cultivate the courage to inhabit the body for that integration is something that requires an enormous degree of accountability. And unfortunately, part of the systemic sustainability of the trauma of our domestication is shame. And shame doesn't exist in the wilderness. Nice. Well, so let's just uh, try to uh, elaborate on a model to understand. So let's go back to road rage. If uh, if I have an issue with road rage, I'm driving along, bang, and then woof, here comes all this emotion, and I have this default reaction of uh, rage or rage being a sense of hopelessness sometimes, and and I have this repetitive, repetitive, repetitive road rage experience. It, so um, you're saying that the emotion that I have this reactive pattern with is that there's a finite amount in my psyche and I'm not really processing it. I'm just banging up against the wall and I, and I keep this repetitive dysfunctional experience with it that if I, um, I guess I would shift I mean the the emotion would well up, but but I shift my uh, I don't want to say strategy, but but my I guess my reaction to the to the emotion, and I mean what's the mechanism there to to break out of the repetitive cycle and and move towards um, uh, evolving through that reactive pattern into a more functional dynamic. Well, self-awareness first and foremost, but road rage is, is one of many examples of not taking responsibility for one's boundaries and believing on some level that other people are responsible for your safety and well-being. And that comes from, you know, early trauma around not healing held and safe in the original, you know, home environment where emotion wasn't allowed to be felt and experienced fully and we never did feel safe or protected and so rage in general is a lack of feeling of safety which is relevant and valid while we're dependent but once we become adults it is no one else's responsibility to heal that but ours and that comes through deep self-awareness and the willingness to find information in stillness rather than action and the conditioned mind and trying to constantly move away from anything uncomfortable. Right. Right. I like, um, so if we all heal, are I, I always like to imagine the um, the outcome, so to speak, of of a, uh, a learning or a, uh, understanding in your book. 
um, in part two, you talk about rewild your heart. Um, how can we, I mean, if I got a glimpse into the future, so to speak, I'm just trying to reach forward into the, the, um, into the healthy dynamic and get a glimpse of it, to get a, a vision of it, to, to help understand um, the outcome of, of healing the trauma of domestication. What, what does a rewild uh, heart look like in a culture or society? Connection. Connection. It's the depth or the, the degree to which we are willing to feel and not avoid any aspect of feeling is the depth to which we remain connected. And so through the lens of domestication, we are taught we need each other for connection. And that is not true. That's spoken through the lens of domestication. The connection that we all lack that we desperately seek in each other is the disconnect from our own soul that is restored through the willingness to feel the full spectrum of emotion. And so what the mature, rewilded human looks like with a rewilded heart is a depth of connection and feeling that is extremely rare on this planet outside of truly wild creatures, which are also extremely rare because of how much we have interfered in the wilderness. And through that, we have a chance and a hope of restoring a symbiotic relationship with life and with nature. And through that restored connection, so much becomes possible that is so beyond our thinking brain and in so far removed from what most of our experiences of life. Is there a model in the, in the history of history? I, I know that sp- spreads out pretty broad. I mean, um, a, a culture, uh, a, a phase of history, uh, perhaps uh, uh, like Native Americans or Aborigines, um, is there a a model in our history of of a culture that that has transcended the trauma of domestication or perhaps never went into the domestication narrative I truly don't know but what I do know is that by reverse engineering the domestication process and the animals I used to train I created that model in the animals in my care and through their modeling of emotional maturity and sovereignty, I was able to mimic that within myself, and that's where all of my healing has flourished. And that is such a unique, incredible way to atone for placing them in captivity in the first place, to give them that emotional sovereignty within captivity, and then use the relationship, not the animal, to mature into the kind of human that would never repeat that most egregious error in the first place. So it was through working with horses that you got this experience? 
initially, yeah. And since then, it's been... Well, so how did the relationship with the horse change in that um, people typically have horses for a reason, and um, if it's to pull the plow or, you know, uh, something to that effect... What's the before and the after as far as the relationship with the horse? Um, Does the horse want to work in communion with us and provide provide that? Or if it is truly undomesticated, that that dynamic would never happen? That dynamic would never happen. And a big piece of my work is learning how to recognize the subtlest no and honor that no. Wild creatures don't seek us out for cooperation for a reason. First of all, our energy is way too vibrationally mixed-matched to even deserve to be in a collaborative relationship with them. But no, only an animal in a deep state of learned helplessness would want to work an emotionally mature wild nature to have to earn our worth through service. And what basically happened is, you know, my initial reasoning to be in relationship to horses was very deeply egotistical and about me and whatever. And then it turned into love, which then as I, kept exploring what love actually was and trying different things turned into healing. And by healing the animal's relationship to their own emotion, by holding space for it and removing all systems of reward and punishment and domestication and unnecessary control and interruptions in their emotional development, it restored their connection to their own embodiment in a way that forever you know, changed my way of seeing what the horse is, much less what their purpose is in my life. And it just created this incredible model for what it would look like to be an emotionally mature human animal um, in terms of having the things that the horse embodies that so many women especially seek out through them instead of inhabiting it within themselves. Nice. Well, now, so if I'm a a parent and I got little kids and I'm listening to the show and I get your book and um, what can we do in that parental role to undomesticate, I mean, how can we move in the un, uh, healing the trauma of domestication in our kids to to help them not be so entrenched in the dogma of domestication? The first step is having a radical commitment to healing your own the emotional maturation of your child unless you are emotionally maturing yourself. And beyond that, it is to recognize your responsibility as the guardian in a dependent guardian situation, be it 
a child in your care or an animal in your care, your role and responsibility is to the development of that being that literally depends on you. And unfortunately, the vast majority of our species is instead exploiting that relationship for some unmet need in their own domestication rather than stepping into the natural order of the role of the caretaker that has a dependent and how do we support that dependent animals. There's a permanence there because it's unnatural that they even exist. And so the best we can do in that relationship is learn from it. But with our children, we have the opportunity to create an entirely different evolution of human that is stepping into adulthood, emotionally mature, connected, wild, intuitively guided, and ready to create something entirely different than the world we have set up for them that is failing at a rapid rate. So if the... Um, if the child is is moving into owning their emotions, um, staying authentic, allowing the expression of emotions, and they they interact with um, education or religious or other mechanisms of the culture. Do we need uh, new cultures? Do we need new education? Do we need new... Um, I guess what I'm getting at here is to go out into the the domesticated world and act in an undomesticated, undomesticated way can um, be seen in such a judgmental sense that oftentimes kids can't understand the reaction to those kind of things. Would it serve our culture to have new models of education, new models of of how our children interact with our culture? It's a both and. So, yes, it would benefit us to treat the symptoms, but there may be an underestimating of how powerful and emotionally mature human is in the domesticated world. You know, those of us that are a little closer to that walk pretty undetected amongst the normal world because it's an internal experience. It's not about expression. It's about a deeply intimate internal relationship with the unseen world, the emotional world, and navigating life through that intimacy, not needing the world around us to cater to our difference or our outlying nature, but learning how to play the game and how to navigate with our wildness. And through that, your power of influence and inspiration is enormous. It's the ones that go out there and have to express and run their mouths that are indicating they are still traumatized that catch the most attention. And that just usually creates conflict ability to be present with the reactions of the domesticated world that you have the power to transmute or alchemize them. Wow. Very well said. 
And with that, holy cow, where did that where did the hour go? I mean, it's <laughs> gone. Well, now I want to make sure the audience knows about you, your books, if you have any modalities and that you work with the public. Um, give us the the whole perspective of you, your website, your books, and any modalities you might have. Sure. I'll be the first to admit I'm not very good at doing what the rest of the world does. So I have a nonprofit that is the primary vehicle for the body of work, Sanctuary 13. And that can be accessed through Patreon at patreon.com slash wildwisdominc. And it, I need to update it. It's a mess. But I teach a weekly class on Sunday mornings. Um, each Sunday I teach something about the various principles of Sanctuary 13 and answer practical questions. And I show up in that space very raw and unfiltered with the intention to provoke and trigger because I am not perpetuating a culture of codependency. I'm willing to meet people where they're willing to meet themselves. And the line between people who resonate with my work and who can actually do it is accountability. So don't venture forth into that space unless you're willing to have an intimate relationship with pain and your full emotional spectrum. Otherwise, you're just going to hate me. <laughs> so it's just right. what it is. Um, but I'm on Instagram. You can find me at RenderMeWild on Instagram. Um, you can get me on RenderMeWild.com. Um, I'm very accessible. And the book is available anywhere books are sold. And there are links to it on both of those um, platforms. Well, very nice. Well, Ren, I want to thank you for being our guest tonight. I have thoroughly enjoyed this conversation. Thank you, Les. Me too. Thank you so much for having me. We've been talking with Ren Hurst, and the topic tonight has been The Wisdom of Wildness, which is the name of her latest book, The Wisdom of Wildness, Healing the Trauma of Domestication. You know, the... The, uh, the the karmic um, loading up of our culture, so for perhaps thousands of years or thousands of generations, has made a normal that is anything but um, harmonious with nature, anything but authentic to our our heart and our soul, anything but uh, sustainable in a healthy and dynamic way that I, I love having shows like this that um, that look at the under undercurrent of I guess the imprinting of the past, the the attitudes the strategies the the cultural conditioning that really just doesn't serve us anymore the the normal of 2019 was nowhere near congruent with the, the nature of nature and we've been blessed with some very turbulent years that have turned quote normal unquote on its head and not that we're going to go back to a singularity of normal that perhaps 2019 might have seemed like, but I suggest uh, the new dynamic will be 
the normal will be individuals honoring the truth of who they are and and not per se a normal template, a normal expectation, a normal mold, if you will, that the collective expects us all to show up in. So conversations like this are, are wonderful for us to take a look at ourselves, to look in the mirror metaphorically and perhaps literally and connect with that that uh, deeper knowingness, that deeper yearning of, of our heart. The, the heart of humanity really wants a more authentic story, a more nurturing culture, a more sustainable idea of, of what being a human on planet Earth could be for us. Hey, I want to thank you, the listener. Here we are at the end of the show, and here you are, too. You've shown up for yourself, and I appreciate that. We do this for you. I'm your host, Les Jensen. Always a pleasure. Until next time. You've been listening to a New Human Living broadcast. I'm your host, Les Jensen. Let me ask you a question. How many times during today, this day, has your heart and soul had direct communication with you? Our egos, left unchecked, will easily consume all of our thoughts and consciousness as we go throughout the day where we really are living an ego-led life. But our ego cannot even comprehend the vision our soul has for us. If you want to increase your personal power, make space throughout your day for your heart and soul to inspire you. Citizen King, The New Age of Power, is a book I wrote just for that. I want to thank you for joining us tonight. I appreciate it. Until next time, thanks for listening.